Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 12th of March 2018 and this is episode number 54. In this programme, I talked to Battlefield Tour Guide Clive Harris about his 20 years experience doing this role. Clive is the director of Battle Honours. In the sake of balance and impartiality, I must point out that there are other tour guides available for battlefield trips. I spoke to Clive from his home in the south of England. Clive, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you tell us by, uh, or can you start by telling us how, how you got into battlefield guiding? Well, I sort of drifted into it, really, um, Tom. I, I was always interested in the battlefields from a very, very young age. And uh, when I, I left the army and was actually working for my local constabulary, I used to fill a van full of blokes and uh, take them over there. And at this time, I realised I was sort of answering more questions than, than asking. Um, that would have been in the uh, very early 90s. And um, I guess my break came uh, when uh, a friend mine out there, Paul Reed, asked me to work for Ledger as the, it was their first sort of expansion uh, into walking tours, which would have been around about 1997. Uh, so I started the walking tours. I honestly never thought I would ever guide large groups. I used to get quite grumpy seeing coaches traipsing across the battlefields, but uh, then found myself guiding them. And um, things from there really uh, took off. I, I soon, um, well, it would have been the early uh, millennium, I soon realised that we could probably visit a lot more battlefields than were currently being offered. And uh, it's from that, really, that Battle Honours was born. So can you give us an overview of your company and, and what sort of things you do? And I do have to mention, for the sake of balance, um, that there are other companies available should people wish to, to, to examine options of visiting the Western Front. I'm glad you said that because we couldn't feasibly take 60 million Brits anyway. So um, we've limited capacity. But um, no, we've been, Julian, who's a long, long friend, and myself been running Battle Honours now since uh, 2005. And um, originally we just, we really set the company up as a small group uh, walking tour company. Um, we wanted to get back to those those wonderful experiences you have on the battlefields where, you know, there's a group of you walking across the fields uh, learning from the ground and, and no one else in sight. Um, but naturally, as you know, it becomes your, your full-time job and more and more people start to come with you, that expands. And, uh, and now here we are sort of uh, 13 years on. And you know, we're, this year, we, between the two companies, Staff Ride and Battle Honours, one for military market and one for the civilian market, we've got 60 groups. And uh, we pretty much cover every Great War battlefield now, um, with the exception of Germany, East Africa and Mesopotamia are the only two that we've not yet ventured to, but the rest, uh, you know, we've walking tours across the globe now. And we, we stick to those original values, I think, which is important, but uh, it's a, a group of friends walking and learning from the ground that they're crossing. And uh, I think whilst we, we stick to those values, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll should always uh, be quite successful. So what type of person comes on your tours and what, what's their general motivation for going? It's changed, probably the demographics have changed over the centenary period because a lot more people are coming specifically to visit an individual or commemorate, uh, you know, someone from their village, their, their school or, or uh, a family member. Um, but typically uh, we would attract uh, someone who would 
be between 50 and 60, and uh, they would be fairly knowledgeable on the Great War already. Western Front Association member maybe have visited the battlefields on a number of occasions and, and just want to see a smaller part of the ground in more detail, if that makes sense. Um, we're not really ones for top-to-toe whistle-stop stores, tours. But I say that so I'm, I'm immediately reminded of in 2013 where Mike Shield, one of our guides and myself, uh, took uh, Max Hastings before he wrote the catastrophe book uh, pretty much, well, all the way from uh, Ostend in the north down to the Vosges in the south in six days and crisscrossed the entire front line. And um, uh, it's something I shall never forget, seeing the size and the scale of the Western Front in such a compressed time. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it to, to many people because there's an awful lot of driving. Um, but from that, we've, I think, we, you know, going back to the original question, I'd say that... Um, the youngest people we have, we do take schools, not too many, but on our adult walking tours, certainly had people in the 30s. And actually, I've got someone booked with me to come to Gallipoli in a few weeks' time, uh, who is a 96-year-old Arnhem veteran. Wow. Uh, so um, <laughs> it does cross the whole uh, spectrum of, of people interested in the Great War. So when you're looking at the Western Front, what I, mean, I know this is a rather sort of controversial question, but what would you regard are the three, quote, best sites that, that people find most moving? And what, what ones do you, you, you enjoy? I suppose enjoy is the really the wrong, the wrong term. But what ones have the greatest impact on you? Well, uh, you, I, I think it would be um, rather try to me to just disregard the more popular spots that are visited because they're obviously the reason why they're so popular and they're almost sunk into our psyche. So um, if we were to start with somewhere on the Somme, um, which most people would have access to, I would say that uh, on a personal perspective, um, Boussancourt Ridge Cemetery, uh, I think it's the closest we get these, you know, 100 years on to a grandstand view of the of what would have occurred on the 1st of July and probably all the way through to the September, actually, because of the views you get there. And I was lucky enough, my company was there for the 1st of July last year. And it was almost voyeuristic that you were just outside the cordon, but you felt like you were inside, yet you felt you are on your own. <clears throat> and really, um, the reason that I sort of discovered that for myself was down to, to a, a veteran, Mr. Nesbitt, who was a, uh, in the uh, signals company, Royal Engineers, attached to the 49th West Riding Division. And it's exactly the spot that he witnessed the 1st of July in, in some letters he wrote home in the late 60s. Um, when he's revisited the battlefields, he always mentioned that spot at Boussancourt Ridge, where he could see the whole of the 1st of July playing out in front of his eyes over 50 years on. So I guess when I go there, a bit of romantic, I try and see it through Jim Nesbitt's eyes. But um, yeah, that's a special spot. Personally, and that second one I'll give, certainly can uh, recall would be that moment as you pass Monty Lepreau on your left and you've got the uh, sort of outpost Hindenburg line on your right and suddenly the grow, ground opens up and it's a wide view and you're looking towards Combray and you're looking towards victory and uh, suddenly you get that feeling of movement again. You feel that you, we're out of trenches and there's going to be a lot of hard fighting still to do but I, I, my heart actually lifts when I get to that area around the Hindenburg line and if I was on the western front and I could spend sort of one more day kicking around battlefields it would certainly be around that Hindenburg line area um, inspired as a child from reading those 
20 years after books that we all, our granddads used to have, you know, with the black and white photos of 19, late 20s, early 30s, and how they looked in the war. Because that area, having not been completely destroyed, unlike the Somonites, is, is still, you know, you can still recognize buildings, you can still see the traces of war. And I guess the last one would be if you went down to the Vosges, which again, uh, you know, is, is really undervisited given the significance and also the spectacular nature of the ground. At the back of Hartmann's Villacop, there's a memorial to the uh, 58th Battalion of Infantry. I'm sure it is, or 158th. But then, but uh, from there, the view stretches out, and you can actually see four countries, and the ground drops away, and you start to really grasp the, as we all should do, the French contribution to the Great War and the significance of it. So I'd say there are three places that are the most eye-opening for me as an individual when I'm tracing across the the Western Front from top to bottom. So when people uh, come with you, what sort of impact does it have to visit the cemeteries and see the sites? I think it's really important that when we, we have very ambiguous itineraries, some of the people that travel with us probably agree on that. And they also have learned, if it's myself or Julian leading the tour, that the itinerary pretty much rip it up as soon as they get on board anyway. Um, because I think it's really important to base the tour around the people you have on board. So if you have an ambiguous, flexible itinerary, and then someone gets on that coach and says, well, actually, my great-grandfather was in this regiment, but I don't know much about him. And you realize you're passing within miles of that. As long as no one else is requested to go to a spectacular, in a particular spot, you can divert and, and focus on that individual. But the important thing is to make the whole group part of that story. And some of the most moving moments we've had over the last 10-plus uh, years have actually been where we've been sharing in someone else's story and people have not necessarily been related to that individual and they might only come once on one of our tours because they've come just to focus on great granddad i, I can actually think it sounds like a black adder sketch but i'm actually in my head envisaging a, a traveling chef from uh, cornwall that ends up in paris at the outbreak of war and us visiting his grave near to that home and following his story and and i can see us all around that grave and there's not a tour goes by now where Someone on my coach will say, oh, there's the old traveling chef across there, even though they're not related. They recall that moment. So I think in, it affects lots of people in different ways. Uh, it's not just sadness. They've got to be proud. They've got to be reflective. They've got to be in awe of these people uh, and uh, grateful uh, as well as sadness. So I think the whole spectrums of emotions really come out on the battlefield all. So on the other side of that, how do the French and Belgian residents of the Somme and Ypres take to sort of people going across their gardens and sometimes through their through their land? Uh, if I actually wander through gardens, I'm quite keen to knock on a door first. Certainly at Effie, I was always a bit concerned on the way down towards Pigeon Ravine. There's a wonderful British observation post from the, uh, well, dates from 1917, but it was certainly involved on the 1st March and again in September. And uh, my great-grandfather was wounded pretty close to that post. So um, just a knock on the door and uh, a, a, a smile and a broken French, which um, in my case, my French isn't bad now. Uh, but unfortunately, whenever I speak it, I seem to sound like Del Boy. So um, a few problems translating. But um, I think if you're courteous and provided you're not damaging crops, I've never had any real problems uh, on the battlefields. I think quite often they're, they're fascinated that you, you, you're looking at their building. Um, last year, when we were down on the Meurs-Argonne, and we were actually following the American Red Cross Ambulance Unit for um, a group from the Kansas City uh, War Museum, uh, we came onto these one of these most 
spectacular uh, sort of gated walled farmhouse that was the headquarters for this uh, unit. And so we wandered in and there was a big pack of beagles in the middle and the guy came out and with a shotgun and uh, we started speaking to him and it was an hour and a half before we left. You know, after he'd showed us his family photos, they'd been there for 100 years and invited the American back for dinner and, and all sorts. So, you know, you get some of your most moving moments by just uh, knocking on a door and smiling and, and explain to people why you're there. And have you actually had any challenging customers? Obviously, we have to be careful of confidentiality. I think it's really important. And um, all of our guides that work for us, in fact, this is over 20 guides working for us this year. But all of them, when we get together at the start of the year and we have like a conference, one of the things that we, we're keen to impress upon them is that it's too easy to just agree with the client all the time. And um, we don't get too many on our sort of tours because not that many first timers that have never been to the battlefields before if we're honest but uh, sometimes they might come with a sort of a i don't know a, a white van man view of the first world war and it's difficult because the great war i still believe the great war is the subject where you know the people with the least amount of knowledge have the biggest opinions and um i i teach all the i say to all the guys you've got to challenge that and you can challenge it in a in a very respectful manner and if you do it early on in the tour by the end of the tour people come to you and say you know what those generals weren't as bad as what i thought before i came or now i realize that not everyone died and five out of six people came home and and i think it's you know you've got the ground to work with which often helps because then they realize that the great war is more than them and you know you can't watch a a single video or read one book and suddenly understand the great war i will never understand the great war because the size and scale of it and if I can change my narrative as I discover more, then I, you know, then certainly people coming on the tours. Uh, we've had a couple of challenging ones. I mean, I'm happy enough to. Um, I think I'm quite confident that uh, this podcast may not reach Midwest America, but I've had, um, you know, I had a couple of challenging people a few years ago. But you know, it's a two-way process, and uh, uh, if you don't want people to come back, then the tours fall when they try to book, I guess. And finally, if there was one site on the Western Front that is virtually unknown in France and Belgium that people should visit, what would, be, what would that be? What would you recommend? Well, that's a difficult question, Tom, because, as we all know, I've joined the Western Front Association as a boy, and we are the, uh, uh, you know, the guardians of the Anorak with the WFA. <laughs> so whatever location I say, there'll be someone who'll say, that's absolute rubbish. I've been there every day for the last 50 years. Um, so no, I don't think there are any unvisited spots, uh, too many left. What I would say is, um, because my passion for the, the sort of end of the war, the last hundred days, I find it very uplifting. And that equal to that is my interest in the architecture and uh, certainly the work of the Wargrave Commission. I would say that I would ask people to go out of their way next time they're either at Arras or Combray uh, and visit the Vissonartois Memorial. Uh, where J.P. Truelove's uh, memorial to the missing at the back wall there um, is, I think, the most fitting memorial anywhere on the Western Front. It's an absolutely incredible spot, and uh, all the imagery and, and the allegorical sort of references that he makes on the memorial um, are well worth a visit. It's, it's certainly one of my favourite spots, Lise Artois, and uh, just to go and see what you know how the army had changed from 1914 to 1918, what it had become, and uh, just what a beautiful memorial. It's just stunning. Clive, thank you very much for your time. 
That's no problem. Thanks, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.